to have you guys here. Everybody look to your neighbor and say hi. Yeah. Say hi, your neighbors. It's been a good time seeing beautiful faces, old faces, new faces coming home. There was, a, there was this former undersecretary of defense. Uh, he was invited to give a speech to a very large conference, about 1,000 people. And as he uh, was standing on the stage, and he looked out, and he grabbed a, his styrofoam cup of coffee. And he was holding it. He, was, he, he took a sip of it, and he looked at it. He smiled. He put it down. And he had a whole speech ready to give to this conference. And what ended up happening was he, he kind of just negated the speech, and he looked at them the people, and he said this. He said, you know, last year, I spoke at this exact same conference. Last year, I was the undersecretary of defense. And when I spoke here last year, they flew me in, business class. When I got off the airport, uh, there was a guy waiting for me with my name, taking my baggage and my luggage to take me to my hotel. And when I got to the hotel, I didn't have to stand in line to check in because I was pre-checked in. All I had to do was just walk into my room. Now, next morning when I woke up to come to the conference to speak, there was someone waiting for me to take me to the conference venue, right? And when I got into the conference venue, standing in the lobby, somebody handed me a very wonderful ceramic cup of coffee, beautiful cup of coffee. And he said, I'm no longer the undersecretary of defense. I flew here a coach this year. I took a taxi to my hotel. I stood in line to get checked in. And when I came down to the lobby this morning, I had to take another taxi by myself to this venue. And when I asked one of the persons who was working, hey, can I have a cup of coffee, he pointed to a coffee machine in the corner, and I said, pour myself a cup of coffee in this styrofoam cup. And he said this to the crowd. He said, the lesson here is this. The ceramic cup was never meant for me. It was meant for the position I held what I deserved was a styrofoam cup, right? He said, as you gain fame, fortune, position, seniority, people will treat you better. They will hold doors for you. They will give you a cup of coffee or a cup of tea without you asking for it. But you have to realize that none of that is meant for you. It's meant for the position you hold. It's meant for the level of leadership or success, whatever, that you have accomplished, whatever you want to call it. But... You must always remember you always deserve a styrofoam cup of coffee. This is what you deserve, right? And, and the point of the story here as we get into our new series is I can't get you guys to love Jesus, right? That's, that's the reality of it. I, I, can't, I, can, I can show you the way. I can point out all the things, but I cannot get you to love Jesus. I can get you to... I can get you to pray a prayer, maybe. I can get you to serve. I can get you to volunteer. I can get you to do a lot of things with the church. But I cannot get you to love Jesus and have a relationship with Jesus. And I came to that realization this past month or so, two months ago, right? It hit me kind of hard, okay? Because I always believed that if I invested enough into somebody, if I, if I gave enough of who I am, if I pour my life into someone's life long enough, Something has to change, right? But the reality is, I can't do it. It is by the power of the Holy Spirit 
speaking in you to get you to move to love Jesus on your own. So this whole series is designed for this one journey. Is that you don't stay stuck where you are at, but that God will take you on this journey to make you into the disciple, into the son, into the daughter that you were meant to be. This journey of the series is to call you into this relationship to help you to examine your life. And when you proclaim that you are a follower of Jesus, that you are a disciple of Jesus, do you know what that really means? And I pray that this series, what it will do is that it begins to convict your heart each week as you move and begin to evaluate your own life and ask yourself, am I truly living and loving and growing with Jesus? It's not about being perfect here. It's not about having it all together. But the question is, am I even moving in that direction? And if you're not a believer and you're here and you're kind of just, you know, searching on who God is and kind of testing it out, stay with the series. Because I want you to see that in the life of a disciple, the way a disciple begins to manage prayer, marriage, money, work, all those things. In the life of disciples, as we begin to deal with our inward attitude, our outward attitude, our behaviors, you're going to see something very beautiful. Because if God is who he says he is, he has his ability to work in our lives, to transform us into a person that deals with the social construct of our world in such a way that brings flourishing to it. And I hope you stay long enough to actually experience that and see that, right? But today, I want to remind you through this uh, illustration that the life of disciple starts with the inward attitude. I don't want to say that we were born entitled, right? But I want to say that, you know, most of us are in the millennial stage, Okay? Except for maybe one or two, three, four of us, right? But majority of us were born into the millennial stage. No fault of our own. We're born into a system, into a growth, into a place where things have been handed to us very easily. Some of you, I'm not saying this as a generic, right? I'm not saying that everyone has been handed things to them, right? But I'm saying as a, as a culture. And we have, this, we have this blind spot when it comes to evaluating what's going on inwardly. Because we think we deserve the ceramic cup. But that cup was never made for you. It's meant for the position you hold. What you truly deserve is a styrofoam cup. And in the same way, the life of the disciples, it starts with the inward attitude. And the inward attitude is coming to the humility that, yes, those things I have around me is great. The blessings, the privilege, the hope, tomorrow, all that is great. But what I remember, what I should know, and what I should keep myself humble by is that my inward attitude, what I deserve is a styrofoam cup. As to say, what I deserve is much less than what I've been given. Today I want us to evaluate the qualifications of the inward attitude of a believer. The qualifications of what it looks like for a disciple of Jesus to look inwardly and see that. You guys ready? Let's start. We start with the Beatitudes, with Matthew chapter 5. You guys can turn your Bibles there. This is the Sermon on the Mount, one of the most famous messages that Jesus gave, right? And, and it pretty much, what it laid down was, it laid down this, this picture of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And it laid down this, 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 these qualifications of those who belong to this kingdom. What does it look like 
How are they to be the citizens of this kingdom? Who are they? What are their qualifications? What is their attitude? How do they address the world? How do they live in it? What is the heart mentality? Okay. And so we start, Matthew chapter 5. We're going to see four inward attitudes that we're going to check today. And all these inward attitudes is meant to get us to one conclusion. You know what that conclusion is? I deserve a styrofoam cup. These four inward attitudes is going to come to get us to come to a conclusion that what I deserve is a styrofoam cup. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. And now when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And people think that each of these blessedness, these beatitudes, are meant for individuals. But actually, these beatitudes are to encompass a disciple. And these four attitudes I want to kind of go over with you guys because it is to get you to reflect on the inward attitude that you have. It's meant for you to evaluate your inward attitude. Because oftentimes we come before the church, we come before God, we come before service, and we feel as if we are entitled to something when we have forgotten that what we are deserving of is a styrofoam cup. See, God is not in the business of looking for people who think they already have everything together. God is actually in the business of giving us what we don't deserve. And the only way that you can really get that is when you, in your heart, come to the realization of what you truly, truly deserve, which is a styrofoam cup. So what is the first qualification? This is what Jesus says. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Look at the person next to you and say, poor in spirit. Right? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? This is what it means. It, mean, it means that you have to come to a place that you admit that your problems are beyond you. You have to come to a place where you begin to realize, I cannot control everything. See, we've been taught that you can manage your life. You've been taught that you can wrap your hands around it, but you have to realize life cannot be manageable. There are things in life, there are problems in life that you cannot control. But we are taught to control it. It's the opposite of reality. Life is not, we begin to see as we live long enough, we can't control your rage, your bitterness, your self-centeredness, your selfishness, your unforgiveness. You begin to see these things in people and you begin to see how capable people are of rage. How capable people are of bitterness. How capable people are of selfishness. How capable people are of unforgiveness. How capable people are of self-righteousness. And the worst thing is when you begin to see it in you. And you begin to like, you know, I can handle it. I can manage it. I can do this. But the reality is sooner or later you know that you can't. Right? Your rage will one day get the best of you. Your rage will one day. Last week I heard the news of a woman got so mad at a guy who cut her off that, he, that she flipped him off as she drove past him, right? And what did the guy do? 
in the car. He pulled out a gun, and he shot into her car. He missed her, but it got her kid in the back, who's sitting on the booster, killed him the kid instantly. All for what? Because you could not manage your rage. Someone cuts you off. You think that happens overnight? You think your rage builds like that? Just one day, like, I just can't take anymore. Flip somebody off. That doesn't happen overnight. That's an accumulation of a lifetime of harboring it, of festering in it. And comes to a moment when you cannot manage anymore, you did not have control over it, and it actually controls you. And a young kid dies because her mother could not control rage, and someone else cut her off while driving. Your bitterness will get the best of you one day. Your bitterness will get the best of you one day. Sooner or later, when you wallow in your own self-pity, when you, when you begin to keep saying, like, why is the world against me? Nobody understands me. Wishing for people to kind of just get me. And when they don't, and when they choose not to, what happens? Your bitterness begins to poison you. Your bitterness begins to exclude you from the world around you. And worst of all, your bitterness begins to poison those around you, and you find yourself alone. You think that happens overnight, bitterness? You think bitterness just happens, just, just pops up? It is a lifetime of festering in self-pity, wallowing in self-regret, wallowing in why everyone else does not see me the way I see myself. Life is not manageable. And when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, what he is saying is, blessed are those who begin to actually realize there are problems in my life that I cannot control. When you come to that realization, instead of blaming other people, instead of trying to uh, reason your way away from it, instead of trying to admit that it's everyone else's problem, but when you come to the point when you can say, this is my problem, God says, blessed are you who are poor in spirit. For yours is the kingdom of God. See, the problem with, the issue with problem is this is that when you begin to just blame everybody else for your rage, when you begin to blame everyone else for your bitterness, when you begin to blame everyone else for why you cannot forgive, when you begin to blame everyone else for your own selfishness and your self-righteousness, what do you think happens, right? You, you begin to have this, this issue like, if I can just change my circumstances, my bitterness will go away. If I can just change my, my, the, my culture, my rage will go away. If I can just change so-and-so, everything would just be perfect. But the reality is, the problem does not go away. The problem just follows you. There's a saying that says, um, I drink to drown my problems, but my problems learn to swim. Right? People who run and leave church to run to another place, because if I can just find a church that's just right, makes everything perfect, everything will work out. Guess what happens? They just bring their problem to the new church. How many times have I counseled young ladies and young brothers who go from one relationship to the next saying that if this time, you know, person A had this problem, didn't work out well, but if I can get person B to fix that problem, everything's going to be working out, what do they realize? The problem is still there. Because if they don't have this problem, they have another problem. Sooner or later, you're going to come to the realization that you cannot control and manage 
everything. And when that moment happens, Jesus says, blessed are you. Because you've taken the first step of the inward evaluation to realize there are problems in this world that I cannot control. There are problems in my life that if I left uncontrollable, it will take control of me. It will actually seduce me. It will actually rule over me. But Jesus didn't stop there. Because why? You can't just say, I have problems. I have problems. All right, you're right, PT. I got problems. We all got problems. Who's perfect? No one's perfect. You're right. But this is what he says next. Verse 4. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. You can't just say, I have problems. You got to go deeper than the problems. Paul, Jesus is saying, you mourn because at the root of your problem is not a philosophical issue. The root of your problem, you mourn, is not because it is a cultural problem or sociological issue or a psychological issue. The root of your problem, you begin to mourn because you realize it goes deeper than that. The root of your problem is a spiritual issue. See, Paul is saying it is blessed that you are poor in spirit, that you recognize you have a problem. But you are even more blessed when you begin to mourn because you have come to a place where you realize that your problem cannot be fixed psychologically, that the root of your issue is not culturally, that the root of your problem is not family circumstances. You see, because if those are the things, what do we do? We begin to blame society. You begin to blame your family. You begin to blame your circumstances. You begin to blame your genes. Yes, they are part of the issue, but they are not the root of the issue. The root of the issue is you. It is a spiritual problem. You mourn because you recognize, I cannot fix this by taking a pill. I cannot fix this by changing a policy. I cannot fix this by fixing my family because I can never fix my family. At the root of my issue, I mourn because I've come to the realization that there is a deeper spiritual issue. And, this, and you mourn because you recognize that the spiritual issue is not between you and people. It's between you and God. Someone whom you can't even fathom nor touch. Do you realize that the best that can happen when you think your problem is psychological, sociological, or cultural? The best that can happen is that you go into one, um, one, one system of healing. Your problem is psychological. Either you take a pill, you sit down, you talk to somebody. And you think that once, oh, once I can get that through, once I can kind of fix that issue, everything will be great. But you know it isn't. Because it jumps from one thing to the next. A young lady once walked into a psychologist, a therapist, and says, what should I do? I have this issue with relationships. I jump from one relationship to the next relationship to the next relationship to the next. I'm depressed. I can't find love. It doesn't work out for me. What's my problem? What am I going to do? Therapist gives the answer. You just got to do what makes you feel happy. When was the last time you remember joy? Now do that. The young lady realizes what? The advice that's been given, though well-meaning and well-intent, all is done 
is trade my issue for relationship and transfer it somewhere else, whether it's job, find my, find my, find my, find your you in my work, right? Do you in my, in, in my education, do you in my health? Make yourself feel good, do something. Well-intentioned, well but all you've done is just transfer the issue from one to the next because in every issue, all you're doing is you're chasing, you're chasing, you're chasing. Do you guys have that inward reflection to yourself? Do you realize that? The problem, the deep problem that Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, is that when you come to the realization that the root of your issue is spiritual. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, they rebelled against God because they thought they knew better. They thought that they can be better. They thought that they have control. They thought they understood how to fix their issue. And what they realized at that very moment of rebellion is that they could not, that they did not, that they had no control from the very beginning. And we are the inheritance of that rebellion. Our rebellion is not that either we are gender fluid. Our rebellion is not what sexual orientations we have. Our rebellion is not that we face after money. Our rebellion is that we think that we have control of our lives. We think that we can fix it through sociological, cultural, physiological, psychological methods. Our issue deep down is a spiritual rebellion before God. You can mask the issue. You can mask the pain. But the deep problem, if you don't deal with the root of it, it will still be there. It's like cancer. You can get rid of the tumor on top, but if you don't get rid of every single tumor cell, it will come back because the root of your problem is still there. You can cover it up with a lot of things. Blessed are those who mourn, Jesus said, is because you are somebody who've come to the realization that the root of your issue is a spiritual issue. We are not just animals, church. We were born with a physicality and a spirituality. Both needs to be fed well and balanced. We spend most of our lives dealing with our physicality. And we've forgotten about our spirituality. And that's what's killing us. And we think just one more thing. One more job. One more relationship. Just let me have a family. Let me get a girlfriend. Let me get this job. Let me make this figure. Let me buy this house. If I can just get it, it would fix everything. Blessed are those who mourn. Because they realize the problem is it's not about changing the circumstances. It's recognizing that the root of your heart is a spiritual problem. You're a sinner before God. That's it. The inward attitude that we have should not be that I deserve a chalice. But that what I truly deserve is a styrofoam cup. We are sinners before God. All right? So I got a problem, PT. I'm a sinner. Sure. Now what? Look at verse 5. So the blessed are the meek. For they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit it. Once you see your problems are beyond you, once you realize your problem is that 
is a spiritual issue. You're a sinner. Then you can either despair and say, you know what? I'm screwed. It's done. I can't fix this. That's who I am. I'm done. It's over. Or you go to God and you plead God for help. See, the number one thing we always do is we just blame our circumstances. That's who I am. That's how I was born. I can't fix anything. Jesus says what? Then be born again. I know that's who you are. I know that's what you've inherited. I know that's your rebellion. Then be born again. You cannot fix it. So let me start you over. To declare that we are meek is to say that we need his help. We need his solution. We need his provision because you don't have any of your own. Jesus saves us from our sins, not in our sins. You know that? Jesus saves us from our sins. The Bible tells us that sin has dominion over us. Sin controls us. Sin is just this, sin is this thing. God has a direction for us. He has a path for us. He has a trajectory for us. Sin is saying, I want to go somewhere else. I want to go somewhere else. I want to miss this mark and choose this mark instead. And as you go down this mark, you realize, I have problems. Oh, my gosh, I can't control my problems. The world is beyond me. Not only do I have problems, my problems can't be fixed by medicine. It can't be fixed by just changing people's behavior. There's a deeper rooted issue that seems to be there. I can't fix anything. The Bible says, Jesus says, blessed are those who are meek. But they, he says, will inherit the earth. Jesus frees us from that dominion. When you go down that road, I'll tell you the truth. You're conquered by it. Right? You know how many times I hear people who tell me, PT, I want to fight for the lost cause. I hate the way people are doing what they are doing. But I'm in a job that supports the very thing I hate. Why is that? Because the money's good. The money's good. I hate, I hate what, I hate the idea of capitalism. Takes advantage of the poor, divides the wealth gap. But I'm not gonna give up my job. I'm not gonna run over. You know why? You have been dominated by it. It has dominion over you, it rules you. Jesus saves us from our sin. What is the, the commonality here? Okay. In this situation. You are going out for a gig and you're trying out. You're sitting there, you're giving your performance. And you're watching the coaches, the people evaluate you. You're going out for a job interview and you're answering the questions left and right, trying your best to get all the right you know, points, you know, be charming enough so that as they're evaluating you, hopefully you get the job. You're on a date, first date. You're trying to put up your first impression, best impression. You're trying, you're trying to get them to kind of like think that, you know what, this guy's actually, or this girl's actually very charming. I like this person. What is the commonality of each of those things? You're trying to wait for their verdict to justify you. Right? Coming home, and you're waiting 
please tell me I got the gig. Tell me that I performed well enough. Tell me that I, that I played the songs, I did the, 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 the piece well enough that they said, yes, we want you, we love you, you're great. You're waiting for that phone call or you're at your work and you're waiting for that job phone call that says, yes, you're exactly the type of person we want. We love you. You are perfect for this company. You're, getting that, you're waiting for that text to say, yes, can we do another date? You're waiting for their validation. You're waiting to be validated by them. This is what Paul, this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. Do you know that all of us, we have a hunger and thirst? We hunger and thirst to always be, ver- to be, um, to, to, to be right before somebody. We hunger and thirst for an identity. Always. We're always searching for it. We're always looking for it. And Paul, and Jesus is saying, why do I keep saying Paul? Jesus is saying, we've been in the epistles way too long, okay? <laughs> Jesus is saying, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's rightness. Not just any righteousness, but God's righteousness. God's verdict. See, the inward attitude of a disciple of Jesus is that, one, you recognize you have a problem. Two, you recognize that your problem is beyond the physical uh, cure. It is a spiritual issue. And three, you recognize that you yourself cannot solve the spiritual issue of sin. The only one that can actually save you is God. But four, you recognize that I'm waiting for God's verdict on me. And the only thing I realize if God's going to give his verdict on me is that he is angry with me. And you're, I know you're thinking like, oh, PT, God's angry at me. See, see, God's so vengeful. He's such a hateful God. I thought God was love. Can I tell you? You are only angry at the things you love. Right? The opposite of love is not anger. The opposite of love is indifference. Have you ever loved somebody who was addicted to something and they could not get out of it? Same cycle, same choices, same problems over and over and over. Have you ever loved somebody like that? How was your response to them? Oh, keep going. I love you. You're great. Were you not angry that they made the exact same mistake? Were you not angry that they came to the exact same problem? Were you not angry that they fell into the exact same cycle? You're angry because why? Because you love them. And when you begin to realize in your inward evaluation of who you are, that God is angry at me. Because he actually loves me. I know I have a problem. I know that my problem is beyond the physical need. It's a spiritual problem. And I know that no one can fix it but God himself. But I have a bigger problem is that God is angry with me. What I want, though, what I desire, what I hunger for is righteousness. I want to be right before God. And a lot of people, they feel this way. Moralists, religious people, they feel this way. And what do they do? And some of you guys, some of us might be that way. We're thinking like, yeah. I feel bad. I know I have a problem. I know I'm a sinner. Yeah, I know that I can't help myself. Only God can save me. But look at what I've done. Look at all the service I've finally put myself into. Look at the good things I have put myself, look at the good things I have done in place of the bad things. A moralist will repent of the bad things they do. But a Christian, a follower of Jesus, will repent for the good things that they do. Not just the bad 
They will repent because they know it is not their righteousness. It is not their righteousness that saves them. It must be God's. See, we, as a disciple, you, you're caught in this, this is angst when you begin to realize, I know that God is angry at me, but what I want is his righteousness. I want his verdict to look at me and say, you are forgiven. I want him to look at me and say, I am proud of you. I want him to look at me and say, you have made it. I want him to look at me and say, you are well done, my good, my faithful servant. I want that verdict. See, when Jesus says hunger and thirst for righteousness, it's not just about a concept. He says hunger and thirst for he who is righteous. That there is a desire in your heart for Jesus himself. His righteousness, not your own. That only his verdict matters to me. You see, because if you evaluate your life based on only what you consider to be righteous, how nice you are, how smart you are, how rich you are, how blessed you are, how well-built you are, how pretty you are, how um, well-connected you are. If you base your life only on your own personal achievement, your righteousness, it cannot save you. It will not save you. Jesus is saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what is righteous. Jesus Christ. Let me share with you the story of a lady named Becky Pippert. She's a Christian evangelist. Okay? And she gave this conference um, a while back, I think in the 90s, and I read the story. She said there's a young lady that came after, afterwards, came up to her and said, can I have a talk with you, Becky? She said, yeah, of course. Come in the back. I'll have a talk with you. This lady came up to Becky, and she was kind of distraught, kind of all, all over the place, a little sad. And she said, I got married last week. Becky said, oh, congratulations. Yeah, but I'm depressed. So, okay, well, that's, that sucks, right? She, and, she, and this lady began to share her testimony to Becky. Um, the church loves me. In the church, I'm, I'm considered one of the, I'm a shining star in the church. My husband, same way. We both serve together. We both give ourselves together. We both lead together. People follow us. They listen to us. We are a shining example. If people look at us and say, Christian, they will point to us. And then Becky says, okay, so what's the problem? I'm depressed. I'm full of stress. She says, why? A few months before we got married, I got pregnant. She told Becky, okay. And instead of keeping the child, I decided to abort the child, me and my husband. And I was, it, it was... It was, it was weird because they wanted a family. They wanted children. They wanted to build a Christian legacy together. So Becky said, well, so why did, you, why did you get rid of the child? Because she said, I knew what it would look like in front of people. I knew what they would say about me. All this time, I've lifted myself up to be this nice Kind, loving, serving, blessed young lady at church. And all this time, my husband lifted himself up to be a nice, kind, blessed, serving young man at this church. And if they would have known that I am pregnant, they wouldn't have known that what I say, what I preach, and who I am does not come together. And that was just too hard for me to handle, for us to handle. Okay. And the day I got married, she continues. I was walking down the aisle. 
my white dress. On both sides, I can hear people just saying, oh my gosh, she's so beautiful. What a lovely bride. What a wonderful bride. But the one voice that was in my mind, she said, that was haunting me. One voice, one voice alone, it was this. You're a murderer. Here I am, standing, saying I do. In my heart, all I can feel is that I cannot forgive myself. I've... I prayed the prayer many times. I know that Jesus died for my sins. I prayed it. I confessed it. But I can't forgive myself, Becky. Why? Why am I stuck in this cycle of anxiety, depression, over and over? Why can I not forgive myself? Even though I know, I know Jesus Christ forgives me. Why? And Becky, Tippett, she swallowed. She said, all right. I think I know why hang in there. Let me tell you. She looks at this young lady and she says, my dear friend, Jesus Christ had died for all our sins. For the religious and the non-religious. The sins of the Nazis and the sins of their victims. For the sins of the moral and the immoral type. He died for all our sins. We are all responsible for the death of the only truly innocent one. The only truly innocent man who have ever lived, we are all responsible for his death. The sin that caused you to give up your child is pride. And pride is what nailed Jesus to the cross 2,000 years ago. And you were already a murderer before you committed this sin. But in Jesus Christ, you've been forgiven long ago. The woman... Upon hearing that she was condemned for even a bigger murder than the one she committed, she didn't lose herself. But actually, this is what happened. Her eyes were open. Her heart was open. And this is what she said. I've always in my head believed I was a sinner and that my sins were responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. I've always known that. She said, I've always known that. I, I can regurgitate it to you point blank without even thinking about it. I can throw it out there. And now I come to tell you I did the worst thing imaginable. And you just told me that I've done something even worse than that. And if I was a part of killing God's son, and that can be forgiven, then so can everything else. You see, why couldn't she forgive herself? Why was she so caught up in her depression? Why, would, why, did, it, why did it eat why is it the spiritual problem that no pill can solve, that no talk can solve, that no cultural change can solve? Why did this problem manifest itself in such a way where it was literally killing her from the inside out? Why couldn't she forgive herself? Because all along, while she thought, while she thought she was a Christian, she knew it up here that Jesus died for her sin, but she was relying on her niceness to save her. She was relying on the things that she has done and the image that she has projected in the church and the people around her to make her feel justified, to make her feel right. She was saying to herself, I'm sure God will accept me because look at me. Look at the person I am. Look how hard I'm trying. Look at the kids that are following after me. Look at the impact that I'm making. Look at all of these things. And because she relied on her own set of righteousness, 
The abortion made it so she couldn't forgive herself because that can't save you. But she became free that day. Why? When she realized she did something even worse and was forgiven by God from that. She, was, she did something even worse and she was forgiven by God. You see, we don't deserve the ceramic cup. What we truly deserve is the styrofoam cup. And yet, what does God give us? He gives us the chalice. And he says, you are mine. But only when you begin to recognize something about you. And you had nothing to offer in the beginning. You had nothing to offer. We have problems, church. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. We have problems. We can't control them. Over and over, we're going to come to realize it. As you get older, as you get wiser, as you face more issues, you're going to begin to realize you cannot control your problems. Your rage, your bitterness, your unforgiveness, they will eventually overwhelm you. But blessed are those who mourn when you recognize that your problem cannot be solved by a pill. It not, cannot be solved by a self-help book. It cannot be solved by some policy. It cannot be solved by changing the circumstances or changing the environment. It is only dealt with when you recognize that you are, that you can mourn because your problem is that it is a deeper spiritual issue. Have you come to that realization, church? That your issue is not what's happening in your environment. The issue is a spiritual problem. And the only solution for that is that you rely upon the mercy of your God to save you. Not on how great you can be. Because he says, blessed are the meek. A meek person is someone who knows that they cannot save themselves. But blessed are those who hunger and thirst for his righteousness. Not your own. You cannot be saved. I don't care how many, how much you have. You cannot be saved. I don't care how well you do things for the church or not. You cannot be saved by being nice or being good. You are saved when you recognize how poor in spirit you truly are, how meek. And you realize what you truly deserve is a styrofoam cup. And when that attitude is there, when you come to that full realization then, then, then and only then, you take the step to say, let me take that cup from you and be mine. Chalice of righteousness. I will elevate you, not you. I will lift you up, not yourself. I will give you my identity. I will work through your problems. You have problems with anger and rage and bitterness. I will do a new work in you. I will reborn you again. You will be born again. Your rage, your hate, your anger, your selfishness, your unforgiveness, I will work in you. The I who began a good work in you, I will see it to completion. See, the life of a Christian, the life of a disciple is a life that frees us from the problems. Frees us from the dominions of the problems. Frees us from the grip of sin. I'm not saying that you won't never sin again. What I'm saying is that it doesn't control you because now your affection, your affection has changed. 
Now when you go on your first date, you don't have to worry whether he texts you back and that you feel validated if he actually messages you back. When you go on a job interview, you don't have to feel validated whether they actually take you or not. When you go out for a gig and you try out for something, you don't have to feel validated or identified by that because you realize what? I already know who I am. I already know who I am. Do you know that, church? Do you know who you are? Because like this young lady, all along you could have thought that you were a Christian. You could have believed up here that Jesus died for your sins. But has it changed your heart to humble you over here? Do you feel like you deserve what you have? Jesus Christ in his life, what does he do? He gives up his life. He surrenders that. That you and I can taste and be identified with him now and forever. So I'm, that's my prayer, church. If you're a disciple of Jesus. Follow after Jesus. Don't play the game. Don't get caught up in your own niceness and your goodness and your service. Am I, am I happy? Look, we, we, had, we had Jason Vu on the keys today. Wasn't that such a blessing to see him there? Right? It's our intern, right? Our worship team intern, right? How awesome is that? We got, we got Tasha on the camera in the back, worship team intern, I mean, our, our digital team, our video team intern, right? We have all these people serving. Is that a beautiful thing? It is a beautiful thing. We have disciples making disciples across our church. Is that a beautiful thing? It is a beautiful thing. But my prayer is this, that you don't get fooled for a second to think that somehow by doing that, everything's going to work out for you. That doesn't justify you, guys. You can do all the right things. And I promise you, not always will it work out. The foolish thing that we can come to the conclusion is that if I do everything right, God surely will bless me. That's not what he says. He said what? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not blessed are those who do good things for me and therefore I will bless them back. He never said that. Check your heart, church. Check your heart. Because the only time you're going to be free, truly experience the power of your God, is when your inward attitude is reorientated correctly. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus says, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed for those who mourn, Jesus says, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. These are promises. I pray that that's your heart. Let's pray.